First of all, thanks for doing this. I um, have been following your stuff for quite a while and it continues to become increasingly relevant because of the landscape of the narratives that are at play in the world today. And, you know, we seem to be coming out of hopefully this uh, COVID situation and there seems to be uh, almost a, uh, you know, there's definitely a readiness, if not like a, a desire to impose this other narrative, which is the the climate change narrative. I think I heard Biden say recently that it's uh, the largest threat to national security uh, that we face today. It's, you know, climate emergency, all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. just to give you a bit of a background on my thinking on this, I've always uh, opposed the imposition of behavior on other people, right? So on that basis, I've always been against uh, affecting laws to dictate people's behavior, whatever the the reason may be. And so in this case, let's say with with climate change and environmental initiatives and that kind of stuff, always been against that. But I've always been in favor of a healthy natural world, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so I always took that as, as, well, as a result of those two uh, positions, I've always took individual action to, to try to conform to my perspective on this issue. And what I've really appreciated about your work is that you've helped me refine my perspective on this. And so what I'm hoping that we get out of this conversation today is for myself to have an even more refined perspective on what actually should be uh, mine and who's, who, anyone who's listening perspective on fossil fuels and climate change more generally, right? So even if even if we assume and accept that the changes that we make or the actions we're going to take are going to be completely individual and you know autonomous, we make those decisions for ourselves. How should we be making those decisions, right? That's what I hope to get out of this conversation today. Um, but maybe okay, for people, I think it'll be, yeah. I mean, I think because there there can be a certain tension there because you can imagine. So if you take like the dominant position today is you could call it climate apocalypse. So the the byproduct of us using fossil fuels is going to make the earth unlivable. And and you see surveys and you see 40 to 50% of people thinking that human race is going to go extinct in 50 years. So really, you know, you're being taught mass extinction. So it's really on the level of you know, a meteor, it's like as if a meteor hit the earth and just had this giant cloud of dust, like that level of a change to the, you know, like the very physical elements of the livability of the planet. Like if that was the case, it's hard to just say, oh, well, like I just, I, as an individual, I'm going to do something because you regard it. It has a, it has a quality of there's an, there's an invasive force that is an existential threat. So I think that the, it's important that the threat or non-threat or somewhat threat be quantified. And then of course, I'm also gonna argue the threat of not having the energy that generates the change needs to be um, quantified. But I just wanna say like, I'm not theoretically opposed to government action if there is a sufficient uh, threat. So I just wanted to say that from the outset. Sure. And maybe we'll dig into that in a little while, but I know just for people that aren't familiar with your stuff. And again, we are a little bit tight on time, but how do you go from, uh, you study philosophy, how do you wind Uh up being a proponent for, well, the moral case for fossil fuels and how does this become, you know, your, uh, you know, the kind of hill that you're willing to die on? Can you just connect those two dots? Cause I think it's really interesting because a lot of times if you get into 
you know, environmental science or what have you, you have a pre-existing bias that, hey, I want to save the world. And I mm -hmm. think that may, that bias may impact your work. Whereas if you're coming from the standpoint of just trying to see things clearly, trying to seek truth, which I think we could broadly say that's the purpose of philosophy, then I find that almost a better premise on which to investigate a subject like this, where there is such a strong narrative and there is such strong pre-existing biases. So can you just kind of, uh, you know, tell me how you got into that? Yeah, maybe I'll do it. One, one quick way I've been doing it lately is just give what I think are three principles for thinking about the issue of our CO2 emissions. And then I'll just trace that. And, and I think it'll be obvious that this is like, it's natural that a philosopher would have this perspective. So just quickly, like three principles. And, and the interesting thing here is these are principles that nobody has ever challenged. Nobody has ever challenged these principles for thinking about the issue. And yet almost nobody practices them. So that's always an interesting thing. I'm saying like everyone agrees that these principles are right when they're stated, but in practice, nobody uses them. I'm going to argue that if people did know them and they used them, they would basically all agree with me, which is a very bold kind of statement, but I haven't seen any refutation of it. So the first one is when you're thinking about CO2 emissions, that you have to think about them as a side effect of fossil fuel use. So, you know, in philosophy, you always want to look at the big picture. I often call it the full context. So if you're looking at a technology that has a side effect, namely putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, then you also need to look at the benefits if you're evaluating that technology, what to do about it. And yet almost nobody talks about the benefits of fossil fuels. They almost always talk about the climate side effects and that's the focus. So that's one principle. Another principle is that if you're, when you're looking at the climate side effects of fossil fuels, you not only have to look at the broad benefits of fossil fuels, you particularly need to look at the climate benefits of fossil fuels and what I call the climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels. Because like if you have an antibiotic, you know, that has a side effect, the benefit of the antibiotic doesn't help you with the side effect. But when energy has a side effect, it does help you with the side effect because energy is the ability to use machines to produce value. And so if you think about, oh, let's say our CO2 emissions are contributing to drought, which is very dubious as, as I can get into. Well, let's say that's true. But the energy that comes with the CO2 also allows you to irrigate places that can make, in a way that can make drought irrelevant, or it can allow you to have drought relief efforts that can save millions of lives. So you may be better off in terms of the climate threat by having both the energy and the side effect, even if the side effect was itself net negative, it could overall be net positive. So that's, this is, you have to look at the climate mastery benefits of fossils. And almost nobody talks about this, which is why almost nobody is aware that climate-related disaster deaths, the number of deaths from climate-related causes is down by a rate of 98% over the last century, despite we've supposedly been harming the planet. Well, it's true we've been emitting CO2. I believe it's true it's had some warming impact, one degree in a hundred, but it's, it's an impact that affects one degree of warming in the last 170 years. So it's not a huge one degree Celsius, not a huge amount of warming, but nobody talks about we're way safer from climate in ways that are pretty obviously due to having a lot of low cost, reliable energy to power machines that protect us from climate danger, whether it's massive natural climate danger or anything we had. And then the third one is that when you're looking at, and this really goes to, I think the motivation of people in the environmental movement and even investigating this field, when you're looking at the side effect itself, any side effect itself, you have to be open to both positive and negative side effects. You can't assume that because we created something, it's bad. So if you take the most obvious one that almost no one talks about, a few people do, is global greening. When you put more CO2 in the atmosphere, that leads to 
more plant growth. There's more basic biomass in the system. And that in general has many benefits. It can have certain harms. I mean, if you can be plants, you don't want to grow, but in general, it's going to be more plant life and more food for the entire global ecosystem. And this is very demonstrated. It's been very significant. Our CO2 emissions have had a significant global greening impact because you see a lot of regions that are much greener, even when there is no human intervention besides our CO2. And even with the warming, which people assume is bad, but yet people generally like warming and warming, if you look at the physics of it, tends to occur in, and the documented history, tends to occur in colder places during colder seasons, during colder times of day. So it's mostly in cold regions like polar regions in winter and at night. And so especially there, you might think, well, the warming could be good. That's not to say there isn't warming that's negative because in certain places there will be more heat waves that you don't want. But people aren't even open to the possibility of warming, even though if you look at the people who discovered the greenhouse effect, many of them, or the, at the time, many of them were optimistic because they said, well, it's going to be greener and it's going to be warmer in cold places. That sounds pretty good. And so what this points to is there's something very, there are at least three things very wrong with the method, what I'd call the method of morally evaluating fossil fuels. We're not looking at the benefits. We're not looking at the climate mastery benefits. And we're assuming that all the side effects are bad, even though some of them are clearly good. And so if you do look at the benefits and the side effects, uh, you look at them in a clear way. And I would argue if you look at them in a pro-human way, uh, which we can get into, then I believe they're clearly so far very positive, which most people, most catastrophists won't acknowledge, which I regret is that's an insane position that they're not so far incredibly positive. But I think all the evidence is in the future, they will be incredibly positive, particularly if you look at the fact that 3 billion people in the world have virtually no energy. So we need much more energy and we can talk about the state of alternatives, but my short version is there is no alternative that's even close to doing what fossil fuels can do on a global scale for at least the next 30 years. Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the things that gets lost in the discussion is people say such and such is bad for the environment. And what I've appreciated from your approach is that you frame things from a human-centered perspective of value and, and from human flourishing. And if, we, if the discussion just centered around that, then I think it would be very different, right? You know, because obviously we exist in relation to our environment. So like if we cut a walking trail through the forest in our town because it enhances quality of life, well, that's right. bad for the environment. We've cut down trees. You know, if, if, we're, if, it's a, if, the, low, if the center of our perspective is, is the natural world, but maybe it's good and it's an acceptable trade-off from our perspective. It's enriched our lives and, and it hasn't, you know, the cost benefit has been in our favor. And so I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that people don't consider and what I've appreciated your work. So, well, but let's, let's, can we just talk about that concept yeah, yeah. for a little bit? Cause I think it's very important. Um, the environment is a term that I'm on a war to destroy that term because it, it's such a confusion. So I'm a big uh, fan of the philosopher Ayn Rand. And one of the things I love that she came up with is a, it's, she calls it the intellectual package deal. So it's an identification of a, of a fallacy that most people are not aware that they use all the time. And so the, what the package deal is, so package deal, we don't use it that much in economic context anymore, but package deal means you combine together two things that don't belong together that you wouldn't want together. So it'd be like, okay, I wanna buy a computer monitor. I'm just looking at one in front of me and I wanna buy, but they're packaging, they're saying, I'm only gonna sell it to you if it comes with the communist manifesto. I'm like, well, I don't want the communist manifesto. I already read it. I don't want another copy 
think it's a bad book, et cetera. So it's a crude kind of thing. So what happens with environment is you mentioned the terms the environment, then you said our environment. I think our environment or the human environment is a very good term because the envir an environment is a surroundings of something. So you can talk about like the mosquito environment and it's a lot like habitat. And so the, it, the proper use of environment is the surroundings of a particular organism from its perspective. Like, oh, this room is a good office environment for me. But when you talk about the environment, it's packaging together our surroundings from our perspective, and then this idea of unimpacted nature. And so you described it at one point as like the natural world. And I think it's really important that the natural, the, an unimpacted nature is not a value at all. It's an anti-value for us to not impact the earth. Now there are certain parts of it that we want to preserve, but it should never be that unimpacted nature is is like that's a value because we survive by impacting nature so if you think of the world as the human environment or as our environment then when you're looking at cutting a walking trail assuming you have pro proper property rights there's not a trade-off it's just an improvement you are making this uh a better place now you can do that in a bad way but i would never i because of my moral perspective i'm looking at the world as a human environment i don't look at it as oh, we can actually enjoy this forest thanks to this walking trail versus it just sitting there doing nothing for any human. Like that's a pure uh, improvement. So I, that's, I don't use this term, the environment, because it packages together a healthy human environment with this idea of unimpacted nature. And I, I think those should be separate. Right. And so is your case that the use of fossil fuels and the continued use and, and the increased use is actually the best uh, form of energy to promote human flourishing. And therefore that's why it is the moral imperative above and beyond other forms of energy current that currently exist. Yeah. I mean, you could think of it as it is to advance human flourishing. This is completely indispensable. And a key aspect of it is the scalability of it. So the ability to provide low cost, reliable energy for every type of machine on a scale of billions of people in thousands of places, nothing else can do that. But I would qualify, there are certain regions where say a hydroelectric dam is going to be better than say a coal plant. And that's great. But if you're looking at it on a global level, you can't have hydroelectric dams everywhere. There's, certain, there's just not the capacity to do that. And they don't have all the versatility, particularly of a natural gas plant. So it's not, it's not like I'm saying use fossil fuels everywhere dogmatically. I'm saying if you look at the basic human need for low cost reliable energy, and then the capability of different alternatives of meeting it, there's a moral imperative to not only continue using fossil fuels, but to use a lot more because most of the world is energy poor. And I would, I would highlight to just viewers or listeners how little the value of energy is discussed and how little concern there is for billions of people not having it. And another aspect of it, so my, one of my contentions, and I think this is undeniable, is that we live in a culture and an intellectual environment that totally devalues low cost, reliable energy. So one piece of evidence is we don't talk about billions of people without energy. Another piece of evidence is even if people think that it's possible that we can replace fossil fuels with solar and wind, which I call unreliables, even though I think there's a possibility, you should still be scared as hell that it won't be implemented properly. Like if you think about it, would we trust the government to even build a train? Like if the government says, oh, I'm going to build a new railroad. You're not like, oh, well, of course that's going to happen. I don't need to keep my eye on that. 
and the government abolished all transportation besides, you'd, you'd be really afraid. Like if Amtrak is doing this, you'd think it's going to come in over budget. It might not be ready on time. But when we talk about replacing all fossil fuels in the economy with solar and wind, which is something that's never been done anywhere at all, we're, we don't even care. It's not even on our mind. And what that shows is, again, we, we live in a culture and an intellectual environment that devalues low-cost, reliable energy. And I think the, the, there's an ignorance cause of that for the general population. But I think among the, intellect, the leading intellectuals in our society, I think many of them do not truly value human flourishing because they know, many of the leading intellectuals know how valuable energy is. And the fact that they don't care about it enough to make us concerned about the people who don't have it and afraid of losing it ourselves means they don't really value human flourishing. Why do you think that is? Why? Do, well, so I think that it is. And, and so what do I think is behind that? Yeah. Um, well, you know, so I think it's important that, so I'm asserting basically that we have an anti-human, largely anti-human intellectual establishment. And I think it's important mm -hmm. that this is not a novel phenomenon historically. So I'm not asserting something unprecedented. I'm saying there's a historical normality that's happening today. So you look at say communism, you know, there was a point at which it was very well known what communism would do to countries that adopted communism. I mean, certainly by the mid 20th century, it was quite obvious. And yet you still had America's intellectual elite until the, the fall of the Soviet Union uh, being very pro-communist and like, this is the wave of the future and stuff like that. And so I would say that's a case where they are not valuing human flourishing. There's something that they value uh, more than that. And I think in, in, you know, with communism, there's a lot of inequality worship. So there's the view that equality is more important than human beings being well off. And you often get this when you get surveys where people ask, would you rather have, you know, would you rather have everyone have, have 10,000 or would you rather have some people have 20,000 and some people have 200,000? People say, oh, I'd rather have 10,000. Like that's an anti-human flourishing view. That means you're sacrificing flourishing to equality, assuming these, do these dollars all have the same, uh, same value to them. And I think you're gonna see this with, um, I mean, religion is a big issue, but at least with certain religions, you can definitely see this where at least the application of it is where the quality of life of human beings is being sacrificed to the observance of the religion. You can see this in like primitive tribes around the world where they just, there's all kinds of slavery and stuff like that. So it's a common phenomenon to have ideas that are anti-flourishing. And I think in, in terms of the motives, I think I'm more familiar with the motives of the environmental stuff and the communist stuff. I think there, there's a lot of envy that drives people. Like you think about what causes people to have destructive, to, to advocate destructive things. A lot of it is they, there's a resentment of people who are happier, more successful, more productive. Like when you look at this thing, this attacking of the 1% and the glorifying of the 99%, sure, you can say, yes, yeah, some of the 1% didn't earn it, but there are clearly people like Steve Jobs who did. And so there's just this element of, I feel better if I can tear down the people who make me feel insecure. And I think that kind of envy or what Ayn Rand would call it more exactly hatred of the good for being the good is a, is a it's not the most common human motive, but it is a prevalent motive. And we are unfortunately in a society where many of our intellectual leadership has that, that motive and where it's almost, um, it's, it's like an okay thing to have. In my view, it should be just embarrassing to have any element of envy for the successful and the happy and the productive but that's considered a totally okay motive today. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I think there's many reasons why that has developed. But, you know, it, it, it seems pretty simple to me. If you take a human flourishing, human centered, of, human center of value perspective, mm-hmm. and then you allow natural cost benefit analysis to do their thing, which is what the free market does, right? The free market is going to try to find the best solution for the lowest cost. Right now, we don't exist in a pure free market anywhere in the world today. And mm-hmm. as you might expect, this being a Bitcoin podcast, I, I feel that is largely due to the type of money that's in use around the world. And so mm-hmm. that not only creates perversions in the truths that the free market elicits, but it also allows for the imposition of the biases and the prejudice, prejudices and the values of the people that control that money to be imposed on every, everyone else further, you know, further down the, the pyramid, as it were. And mm-hmm. so I think that creates a lot of distortions. So it's, it's difficult to find truth. And I think that's one of the main problems we have here. But I want to ask you, if you know what you're saying is true, and if we're looking at the cost-benefit analysis and we're saying, and I've heard you say this before, actually, that you know energy is freedom, right? The more, the more energy we have, the more time we have, and the more time we have, the more we can do, right? The more mm-hmm. we can innovate, the more solutions we can conjure up, that kind of thing. And having people from a top-down perspective impose on us things that reduce our access to energy, therefore reducing our time, therefore reducing our freedom. And I mean, it is in very real sense, a form of oppression among many others, let's say. But what is it like, why is the cost benefit analysis discussion not happening? And, you know, the, the, maybe the more important or specific question here is, we hear all this doom and gloom about climate catastrophe. But here you are saying, actually, you know, the energy that we're using and where we are as a civilization today, we've never been safer or let's say more insulated from climate related negative impacts, you know, mm-hmm. catastrophes, deaths, that kind of stuff. So w- like, what's the disconnect? What, what, what proof are, are these people that are promoting the catastrophist point of view using to say our use of fossil fuels is dramatically impacting our survivability on this planet? You know, what's, what's the disconnect? Because you're saying that we're able to stave off the negative effects of nature as a result of our use of this, you know, cheap, uh, reliable energy. Mm-hmm. And then the other side, we have the complete opposite. Right. So I think that the catastrophizing is a rationalization for an anti-human goal. So I, let me just explain why I say that. So, but I want to point out like, so let me give you a, what I would find to be a compelling argument for catastrophe. If somebody said this, if they said, okay, I agree that the world we live in today is the best world that has ever existed. Like today's human environment has been better. The planet has never been better from a human flourishing perspective and low cost reliable energy from fossil fuels is a fundamental cause of that whose benefits so far have far, far outweighed its negative side effects. But I am concerned that because CO2 aggregates in the atmosphere, at a certain point, there's going to be a catastrophe, even though we're safer from climate than ever now. Like they could say that, and that's a plausible argument to me. But notice that nobody says this. They don't say the world is amazing, and they don't say fossil fuels have been an amazing benefit. And as I said, there's no concern for that benefit at all among our intellectual leadership. There's only this focus on the catastrophic 
side effects. So the catastrophic side effects, I want to note, they're in the future. So it's, it's much more of a hypothetical thing, but the first parts of these are in the present and the past. So if you're measuring things by a human flourishing standard, so if your ultimate, your standard ultimately is determined by your goal. So like, is your ultimate goal, if you're thinking in terms of the world, I want global human flourishing, more and more humans living to their highest potential. That's going to, if that's your ultimate goal, that's going to be how you evaluate different kinds of policies and technologies. So if that is your goal, and if you understand energy, and if you understand the world, you have to admit the world is better than ever, and fossil fuels are a fundamental cause. And yet our intellectual leaders portray the world as worse than ever, and they portray fossil fuels as a huge net negative already. And so what that means is what's going on there has nothing to do with the science of catastrophe, because they, they are mis-evaluating the present by a human flourishing standard. And so what that means is they're not on a human flourishing standard. And the, the, the standard they're on is unimpacted nature. That's, that's the actual standard they're on. And I would add, that's the standard most of us are on without realizing it. Because if you look at the average person, the average person is taught not to think about the value of energy. The per average person does not realize how good the world it is compared to the past, because we've been taught to just evaluate the world by human impact is bad. We've impacted it a lot. Therefore, it's worse, even though it's actually better for human flourishing. So I think the core, the core intellectual driver behind this is this goal and standard of unimpacted nature. And I think they put that over through two things. So one is they disguise it, and this is the idea of the environment. So they, they call unimpacted nature the environment so that we think, oh, that means clean air and clean water and walking paths, but it doesn't mean that at all. If you don't impact nature, you don't get any of those those things. Like unimpacted nature is not good in any of those uh, respects, but they package it together. So we think, oh yeah, if we pursue the, if we protect the environment, we're doing good. Even though in practice, we're shutting down factories, we're shutting down farms, we're stopping building walking paths, et cetera. So part of it is they, they create confusion. They misrepresent their goal. They, they portray their goal as a pro-human goal, even though it's an anti-human goal. And then they also Poor, they also mislead us about their policies. And this leads to the catastrophe thing. They pretend that, oh, if we keep impacting nature using fossil fuels, there's going to be a catastrophe. So it's actually helping you to stop you from using energy. And you can see there's a whole track record I talk about in, in chapter one of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, where there was supposed to be a resource depletion catastrophe. We were impacting the world too much in terms of depleting resources. And then there was a global cooling catastrophe. And then there is a pollution catastrophe, like all the air is gonna be, everything's gonna be dark and there's gonna be unbearable pollution. And then it's a global warming. So you see there's always this formula of human beings free to impact the earth are going to bring about this catastrophe. And, and the root of this is what I call the delicate nurturer premise. The view that unimpacted nature is stable, sufficient and safe. So it's a nice nurturing environment that takes care of us but our impact will disrupt the delicate balance and then destroy us. And so that's, that's this dogma that most people believe, but nobody who really studies history can believe this idea that, oh, nature is a delicate, like, no, nature is wild potential and we need to massively impact it to flourish. But by promoting this delicate nurture premise, you're able to advance these anti-impact policies because you get to say, oh yeah, we're against fossil fuels is because I want to alleviate a climate catastrophe, but also they're against nuclear, right? Oh, we're against nuclear. Forget about climate catastrophe because nuclear is non-carbon, but oh, it's going to be a nuclear winter. And then you see with hydro, they're even a lot against hydro and that's even, they're more bald 
about that because they'll say, oh, it interferes with free flowing rivers. And you're like, wait a second, this could save the earth by your standard and provide energy. And you're concerned about free flowing rivers and like this one species of salmon, like you're clearly, your goal is not human flourishing. So again, I think the, the motive, the goal of our intellectual leaders and the standard they use to evaluate things is unimpacted nature, not human flourishing. And they've tricked us into this by portraying that as, oh, our goal is a good environment and, and tricked us by thinking, oh, the earth is so fragile. So if we impact, it's bad. So we better just get rid of all our impact. And then we're gonna live in a wonderful natural world as against we're gonna live in a terrible dehumanized world, which is the goal of this movement. Yeah. You know, you, I've often heard you talk about, and basically you, you touched on this, you know, just now where yes, there's a cost to any action a human being takes basically in the environment in which we exist, right? We can't, we don't exist in a vacuum. You can't have no effect. But what you're saying, I think, is that the effect that we are having uh, is the cost of, of the effect that we're having pales in comparison to the benefit that we derive from it. And so when the- No, no, that's not what I'm saying though. Because, you know, just because it's, the cost, see, this cost is still being measured in terms of unimpacted nature. Because if you say, I do say no, that's everything. Not how, that's not how I'm oh, it's not. Okay. No, no. Okay. I, I'm assuming that there is, let's say, some cost to the environment that we experience as a result of, of the things we do. Right? So like, let's say, or, or maybe this, maybe we should clarify this point. For the case, in, in the terms of fossil fuels, mm -hmm. is there no cost whatsoever to, uh, human beings for the use of fossil fuels. So let's say in air quality, or let's say in, you know, environmental pollutants or toxins or something like uh -huh. that. No, but I, I, so I use cost. I don't, I, I often use side effect. I think it's helpful, more helpful to think about it. Cause you could, there is a, what I would say is there's always a cost, which is human time, which is if you're human flourishing, like human time is your primary value, because that's yeah. the thing you, you have. That's an element of flourishing. And it's the thing you want to, you want to make good and flourish within. So every action has a cost in terms of human time. And I would say most actions have some sort of side effect. And I think fossil fuels, like fossil fuels have more of a negative side effect than nuclear energy, for example. And you right. could imagine nuclear fusion, which would have less and less. And one of the great things about knowledge progressing is we can actually take side effects and make them positive. So like oil, you know, residual oil when you were lighting a kerosene lamp used to be dumped in the lake and be a real environmental problem. And now it becomes plastics. And then even, okay, well, you can have some problems with plastics, but now you can burn them and turn them into energy and you can burn them more clearly, more cleanly. But I would, I would just differentiate three things. One is every action has a time cost. I would say most action has some sort of negative side effect. And I would say every action has an impact on nature, but that's just because you're acting in nature. But I wouldn't equate that with a negative side effect uh, at all because many of the impacts on nature are benefits. Like when I have a healthy meal, I'm impacting nature, but I consider that a benefit. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think we're on the same page with that. I was just gonna, you know, my, the point I was gonna make was just that it seems that whatever the side effects uh, of, you know, our cost in terms of time are in using, let's say fossil fuels, it seems what they, the use of that energy permits is us to always improve our situation rather than falling backward and maybe being subject to more impacts than, than benefit. 
you know, that, that, that was. Well, but again, it's like impacts. And so I, I mean, I'm just pushing on this cause I want to just, I have very deliberate pro-human terminology. So it's, it's like, I never use impact as a negative. I'll say neg- I can say negative impacts, but the, the term impact as such is widely used as a negative, like environmental impact. It's another package deal is used as yeah. negative. And that's, that's wrong because most environmental impact is a positive. Right. And again, I'm, I'm taking the human centered, you know, view. Let, let, let's just put it this way. Let's say sea level rising for places that are below sea level or something like that. Mm-hmm. To the extent, and I'm not making a claim here, to the extent that any of our energy production activities increase sea levels, right? That mm-hmm. may mean that we need to do something to preserve and or move the places that would be affected by a rising sea level. Right. right? It's a negative Actually. side. It's a negative side effect. But it, you're, I'm glad that you pointed out that it's not true because some places would want higher sea levels. Right. I mean, there are certain right. certain sure. places that would, so would want all, that. All I'm saying is that let's say that's a side effect of how we generate energy. Yes. What seems to be the case in the case that you're making is that our the 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 benefits that accrue as a result of our use of, of the best available energy far exceed whatever accommodations we have to make to permit us to use that energy. Yes. Is and that- the, the, and the, the, the distance between them increases. So if you take right. the moral case, I think chapter two or three, I talk about the perspective that um, William Jevons, who's this legendary uh, economist, was legendary in a bunch of ways, but he you know, he talks about coal and the value of coal. And he's talking about just coal is amazing and coal is making life possible. And that's in an era where the side effects of coal are, are at a level we would consider just totally unacceptable. Right. But to them, there was a letter written to, I think it was a publication Jevons wrote for, and he described it as like losing coal would be like losing a loved one or a limb. So they, it, you think about back then, that even then the benefits of energy were so important relative to the side effects. That's the perspective they have. But now think about all the filtration we have, right. like what we experience with coal and like centralized power stations with all kinds of modern filtration systems. I mean, it's such a benefit. And, and you really have to look at it. If you really think about what was life like, what is life like in unimpacted nature and pre-capitalism, pre-industrialization, which means before we're using machines to do much, like that's pretty close to unimpacted nature. And and the point is, it's not it's not stable, sufficient, and safe. It's dynamic, uh, deficient, and dangerous. And so, if you really get the perspective that unimpacted nature is a really bad human environment, even for a hundred million people, let alone eight billion people, which is what they're talking about regressing from now, then you really appreciate what fossil fuels do to a human environment. So if you're looking at the world as a human environment, you need an environment where you have a whole bunch of machines doing a huge amount of work for you and related to a point you made earlier, where you have a whole bunch of humans with a lot of time freed up to think. Like that is a good human environment. A lot of machines and a lot of liberated humans. And that's what we live in. And unfortunately, we're not taught to appreciate and not taught to contrast to the time where there were very few machines and therefore the humans were very weak machines. And so we made yeah. almost no progress. Yeah. And it, it seems like the catastrophist side of this discussion has that flipped on its head. So the side effects are far in excess of the benefit. Yes. 
And therefore, we need some big dramatic change and in intervention. But just so I can, so I can understand this better, mm-hmm. what are the things that are being pointed to as evidence that the side effects exceed the benefits? Like, you know, we're, we're, we're told by some people the earth is going to end in 12 years, right? But, you know, like what is the evidence that they're pointing to to even make, even if we accept that the argument is uh, founded on the wrong principles, it's not human centered, all the rest of it. But what, what is the evidence that they're pointing to, to to show that the side effects exceed the benefits of using fossil fuels as a form of energy? Well, but I think the real evidence is the denial of the three principles I mentioned. So I think the evidence is denying the benefits of fossil fuels, denying the climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels, and only looking for negative side effects for fossil fuels. Because you just think if you talk, like let's just talk about the climate mastery benefits. It is really serious and an important fact that the rate of climate related disaster deaths has gone down 98% over a century. I mean, imagine like, how significant that is. You means the average person is 50 times safer from climate. What that shows is that climate mastery is this unbelievable force that we're not appreciating. We don't appreciate like our ability to take a dangerous climate factor and to neutralize it, or sometimes even to turn it to a benefit. Like I use the example of, you know, a, a, a previously, a once dangerous thunderstorm can be a setting for a romantic evening now because we have such a high level of climate mastery. And so if you really ask yourself, and I, I have an, a new book coming out next year, which you can't order yet, but hopefully soon called Fossil Future, which is a lot kind of the next level of all this and looking more toward the future. It is so hard to think of something we could do to the global climate system that would truly be catastrophic, let alone apocalyptic. Like even with sea level rise, which I think is the most plausible, you have a hundred million people already living just fine below sea level today. So we already have a lot of mastery of sea levels, things like heat. I mean, the world has 15 times more cold-related deaths than heat-related deaths. And again, heating generally occurs in the colder places. So there's no chance that heating is going to be a net bad. And then drought, I mean, drought, like you have irrigation, drought relief, like that has made drought-related deaths in the U.S. almost zero. And there's a lot more that you could do. Storms, like unless the storms are getting three times or four times more powerful, like if they're three to four times more frequent, that's not that big a deal. They'd have to be so much more powerful. There's no evidence at all that they've gotten any more uh, powerful, any appreciable amount. And then wildfires, which I live in California, so it's understandable people are afraid of it and they see it in Australia and California, but it's super easy to manage wildfires, even in much less hospitable climates than we have today in terms of wildfires, because you can build barriers, you can clear forests. And if you look in detail at all of these, it's just clear forest mismanagement, not coincidentally by this idea that we shouldn't impact nature. And I'm stressing this because if you actually appreciate climate mastery, it's really hard to think of anything negative. And yet people like they don't acknowledge this at all. They don't take a serious look at our climate mastery abilities. And if you look at the more, not the total apocalyptics, like they're very vague. When they talk about the side effects, they don't talk about them in apocalyptic terms. It's like, yeah, you know, droughts could get worse or they might get worse or the food production might decline. And they don't talk about the benefits of this. So it's, it's just, they're not looking at it from a human flourishing perspective. Like I'll tell you, I would find convincing. I would find convincing if you could show me like five foot a decade sea level rises, like that I could imagine, but nobody's arguing that uh, at all. The UN 
in what I believe is almost certainly an overestimate, says it's about less than three feet uh, by the end of the century. And if we do nothing, they say it's 18 inches uh, by the end of the century. So far, I mean, just to give you a sense of how much distortion there is, NASA recently published something where they said, hey, you know, the rate of sea level rise is, um, I think it's three millimeters a year. So it ended up being 13 inches a century. And they tried to scare everyone because that's not very scary. That's much slower than it was throughout a lot of human history. So they said, but that's like the US being uh, under six feet of water under certain. So what they did is they said, well, imagine all the sea level rise just took place in the US, then wouldn't that be scary? I mean, is that a serious scientific thing to do? Global mm -hmm. sea level rise cannot, it's just like you cannot have a cup where just the middle of it rises. The US is 2% of the world. So it's just, I would ask anyone, can you find actual claims about side effects from credible people that would be catastrophic, let alone apocalyptic enough to justify depriving billions of people of energy? And that's why I say you cannot. And so this whole thing is based on benefit denial and the benefit denial is based on not looking at things from a human flourishing perspective. Totally agree. But just from my knowledge in this discussion, mm -hmm. what to your mind is the worst side effect, you know, because I, I'm, I'm still trying to understand or not try. I understand why the, the, it's being framed as it is, mm -hmm. but I, like the, the apocalyptic narrative and people using this hyperbolic language and saying the, the world mm -hmm. worth, the earth is ending in 12 years. Like, I'm just wondering what is the metric that they're looking at to even allow them to say something like that? Presumably there's, there's, no there's, there's something that, that is not, that, that a side effect that is noteworthy, a negative side effect. Well, no, I mean, you could ask me what I think. I think I, the would, biggest, I would love to know what you think. But yeah. the biggest is has nothing to do with climate for me. It would be uh, air pollution. And even that is very exaggerated, but that can at least be very unpleasant. It's not nearly the deadliness that people say. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of bad data around that or manipulation around that. But like you look at, yeah, you can really, and, and water pollution too. But I think air pollution, like if you look at, um, where you have bad policies and also where people are poor, so they can't afford as much pollution control, you can say, yeah, like, I mean, it, certainly you take that, the history of coal, like there was very, very undesirable levels of air pollution at certain points during the history of coal. So that would be something. I mean, another thing, it's sort of a side effect. You could think of it as more like an inherent risk, but if you just think about explosions of things, so nuclear is actually the safest form of energy because the nuclear material that we use can't explode. But for instance, gas lines can explode. Like you can have hydroelectric dams can also explode. That's probably the worst type of explosion that can happen. So there are, there are these just dangers and those are very real things. I mean, you know, if somebody dies for, I mean, like you, I say it's worth taking the risk, but you don't want to trivialize. Like somebody dies from a gas line explosion, like they're dead. And that is a real tragedy. And so in general, you would want, all things being equal, you want technologies that have less of that kind of risk, which I think long-term nuclear would end up being the ideal because it has such a low risk of those kinds of uh, out of control events. But in terms of climate, again, I think sea level is the most plausible. You know, they talk about, they're always coming up with new ones. So then they have like ocean acidification, which that's impossible. It can't acidify, it's actually ocean neutralization. So there's all these distortions. I mean, another one they have is like, oh, it's a global species extinction, but none of these make any sense if you think about them. And there's, so, I mean, species extinction, really? So you're saying a warmer world 
with more plant food, everything is going to go extinct. Like, is there any parallel with this? And just one step I think is important that, that puts me at ease most of all is that the history of the planet has been much higher in CO2 and much warmer than today when our you know, ancestors evolved and where life thrived. So it's not like we're at this unprecedented precipice where we're at 420 parts per million CO2, it's never been there. No, it's been at least 10 times that in history. And temperatures have been 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than they have today. And by the way, it's not 25 degrees warmer at the equator. It's mostly in the colder regions. That's why ice wasn't present on the planet for most of its history. So we could live just fine on that planet. Now you could say, the most you can say is we don't want to transition too quickly from like this icy planet to an ice-free planet because it would be a disruptive rate of change, but it wouldn't kill us all. And we're nowhere near that. We've had one degree Celsius, so two degrees Fahrenheit of warming in the last 170 years of fossil fuel use. So there's no, if you look at the nature of the planet, there's no case whatsoever for climate apocalypse and very little even for catastrophe. And if it's just catastrophe, we should still use fossil fuels. Like it, there's no, nobody can even make the case that the rate of climate related death will increase to the level it was hundred years ago. Nobody has plausibly made that case. Think about that. Nobody can make the case the climate will be more dangerous to us than it was 100 years ago. Yeah, it, it really seems to me that the issue here is, you know, the, uh, basically the inability of the market to signal, you know, to transmit pristine price signals. And as a result of doing that, allowing each participant to make the best choice possible. And I think in this context, the, be the, the best choice possible is using the cheapest, most reliable form of energy, because that what, that's what bestows the most time, the most freedom, the most innovation, mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the more creation of value. And that is what solves our problems as human beings. And that's what enriches well, we our life. Decent, I mean, I think it's important that we, I mean, we don't have nearly as much of that freedom as we would like, and that would be good, but we have way more of it than the anti-fossil fuel movement wants. I mean, sure, their whole criticism sure. is we have way too much freedom to emit CO2. And their view is you should have no right to emit any CO2. And therefore, we have a right to have totalitarian control over your life, which is really what the Green New Deal is. So I would just stress, I, I agree with you that we need a lot more, but it's important that our freedom to use fossil fuels, including to emit CO2 thus far, has been an incredible benefit. And there are a lot of price signals that are, you know, the price system has worked, particularly outside the realm of electricity. So the problem with electricity is it's a government monopoly. And so the government can just totally screw up all the price signals. So it can, for example, it can subsidize. So it can say, hey, we'd like you to use more wind. So we're gonna pay you 2.1 cents a kilowatt hour to have wind. But we can also say, hey, you know what? Even though wind is uncontrollable and unreliable, we are going to, you are allowed to sell us electricity with wind and there's no price hit that you take. So you can sell us something unreliable and it's the same as somebody selling it to us on demand or reliable. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Free market actors wouldn't act that way, but the government controlled grid just has systematic discrimination against fossil fuels and nuclear in favor of these unreliables. And that's why you get these, this crazy state. I mean, think about it. We're in 2021 and you look at like the, I'm in California, people might ask why, but the why is it's the nicest place still. And I do appreciate our natural environment, which is not replicable 
with current technology. If we can replicate California with technology in the future, I will surely move. Uh, that's that's it. That's it. A digression, I, I, but you, I feel you. In the state where California has a, like we have like these extreme warnings for blackouts. It's 2021. All you need to do is have enough reliable power plants and enough fuel and enough of a buffer so that you can handle anything. It's so easy to do. And yet our terrible philosophy is leading us to try to have as much unreliable electricity as possible. And we're insisting that it be renewable, which is another synonym for natural or unimpacted nature. So it's, again, it's, it's a moral philosophical issue. Why do we prefer renewable? That it's, it's, it's a philosophical issue. So we're insisting on this unreliable renewable. And then we're, we're restricting as much fossil fuel and nuclear as we can. We're shutting down nuclear record rates, even though we claim to care about CO2. And it's, I call it reliability chicken because it's like have as much unreliable electricity as you can, have as little reliable electricity, and then hope it doesn't get too hot or too cold. Like, we might right. as well be praying to the weather gods with this primitive right. mentality. Yeah. And, and I find that terrifying. And, I, and again, that's not only do I think is, is the adoption of Bitcoin important for more pristine price signals in a market so that we may all be able to better judge our behavior on, you know, let's say a greater well, more truth, right? Because there's not distortion in the price signals, but also you remove that parasite that's able to impose things via their control of the money. You know, because as you just said, I mean, how much have all these subsidies and all these top-down dictates and all this kind of stuff, how much has that perverted the market for energy globally and the cost of different forms of energy and pricing and all that kind of stuff and caused imbalances and misallocation of capital? I mean, I would say dramatically, Right. So if that all that were removed, it seems that, you know, the case that you're making now would be even better. I mean, the disparity between the the relative advantages of in, at this current point in time, fossil fuels versus the to use your term, unreliable alternatives would be far more obvious. Right. But because of all this intervention, perhaps the, the, mud, the waters have been muddied and people, you know, and you layer on this this uh, per pervasive narrative that people are far more confused about this. And that's actually, you know, that brings me to one of the last questions I got for you. But I think a lot of us, you know, that, that share my perspective, let's say, are very much against top-down decision-making and, and misallocation of capital and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. We want the free market to determine what we should use. And, um, you know, and I think maybe your whole thing is not that fossil fuels are the moral imperative, but that the cheapest, most reliable form of energy is the moral imperative. And whatever the market shows or dictates or elicits that to be at any given point in time is what, what we should be using. And we should not be taking measures to counteract or to get in the way of free market participants voluntarily choosing to do so. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I just, I, it's important to focus on fossil fuels in particular because they're they are the actual economic form of energy. They're actually the most cost-effective. But, but that's what I'm saying. Cases. Right, right now they are. Right. Oh, so of course, right, right. So it's it's yeah. So it's always important for me to qualify. Yeah, the fundamental value is cost-effective energy. Exactly. And and and, it's, that, and you need the freedom to produce and and use that. And then that and then but today the most in fact the most cost-effective form of energy by a long shot and that will be for. A while, is fossil fuels. Is fossil fuels, right? And and energy freedom is being primarily attacked by attacking fossil fuels, including by catastrophizing 
the side effects of fossil fuels. So, so I just that that's what. But I agree. The broader, you're right about the, found, the broader principles. Yes. Yeah, the the foundational principle is the cheapest, most reliable form of energy should be the one that people are able to voluntarily choose to use. And any intervention in prohibiting people from doing that that is the infringe. That is the that's the moral issue that you have with all of this right now because of the time and place we exist that fossil fuels are the cheapest, most reliable form of energy. And therefore they are the, you know, the, the thing that you're defending or making a case for, but the, the foundational case is simply that we should not get in the way our governance structures, et cetera, should not get in the way of the market determining the cheapest, most reliable form of energy for us to use for human flourishing. Right. That's the, yeah. I mean, I would add, I think you also have to add in the issue of side effects because you can't, it can't, I mean, you could say cheapest, most reliable, but if it was really going to be, Oh, it's making us all extinct. Then that is that is an unreasonable side effect. So it's probably too much well, detail to go into now. Well, but- here's the thing: Do you think the market would choose that? Do you think the market, the free market, would choose that form of energy? I don't think it it's, would. It's possible. I mean, I I don't. I like talking. So market, like how the market is a market of people with rights, and so it it just depends on how property rights are defined. Like you talk about things like murder and how that. Uh, and then this brings in like anarchy issues versus which is not my position and other kinds of perspectives on things. But I just think it's it's important that like part of the case for fossil fuels is that they have like reasonable side effects. I mean, they're, they're side effects that are totally worth it, but you do have to factor that in. And particularly if you had like imagine that fossil fuels were like leave aside the climate type stuff, which I don't think you can even demonstrate as a negative. But if you take like air pollution, if you're in, if you're in a case where yeah, nuclear is almost exactly the same price as fossil fuels, same scalability, I think most people would reasonably be would choose nuclear in that case. You know, for assuming you could do this for all these other things, and that is a legitimate kind of thing, and and it's a longer discussion. But I think it would be okay for the if you actually had if you if you had actually an alternative to fossil fuels that was way cleaner, way safer, and just as cost-effective, you could dramatically increase what like the standards in the society of what levels of pollution would be considered a level of violating rights. And, and the short version of this is like, you have to decide at any time what violates rights, and that's gonna be contextual to the state of the society. Like imagine you had said 150 years ago, oh, you're not allowed to have any horse manure uh, disease from your actions. Okay, well then we're just all gonna die and not do anything, right? Cause we can't farm, we, we, we can't do a lot of stuff, we can't travel. So like in the past, it's not a violation of property rights to have a bunch of horsemen who are all over the place, but today it certainly would be. And so that's that's a subject I discuss in I think chapter seven of moral case, but I do think yeah. you have to factor in the side effects, but the key is like, yeah, you want the most cost-effective energy and that requires individuals to be free to discover it. Yeah, I think I think the one of the crux the crux of this issue though is who's doing the factoring in. And I would say that if we leave the factoring in in, in terms of the side effects to an all-powerful government, let's say, then we're going to inevitably come into a situation uh, that we're in today, the one which you're, you know, uh, kind of fighting against. Whereas if we leave the factoring in to the individual, then I think the emergent solution will be far more, far greater representation of the truth of the matter rather than one coming top down and having all the biases and prejudices and narrow scope that they often do. But I know you got to go in, in two seconds. So I just want to ask you this. I think a lot of people would say, 
I don't believe in, in this top-down decision-making. I think, you know, people should, you know, the market should be free to determine what the best form of energy is. Um, but all else being equal, and, and, and this is particularly relevant to Bitcoin right now, right? Because the Bitcoin mining uh, argument rages on and some people mm-hmm. think like Elon Musk thinks we should have a certain portion that's quote unquote green energy and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think some people, just because that narrative is so pervasive and they've heard it for so long, say, well, I don't agree with all this bullshit about imposing quotas or you know, famous people coming in to tell us what we could do, but all else being equal, it would be better to be using solar, wind, hydro than fossil fuels. And based off of this discussion and my familiarity with your work, that doesn't seem to be the case. There is no- There's not, in- All of this is not equal at all. Right, right. If it, so was, if it was equal, I mean, and it depends what you mean by green. So green is a religious term. But if you were to say like, if you cared about CO2, low carbon, or you, if you were to talk about being clean in terms of, okay, this generates less air pollution or water pollution. Yes, all things being equal, you would want the thing with fewer negative side effects. But- solar is not remotely, you have to look at the full context. That means the negative side effects and the beneficial effects. And the point is fossil fuels produce low cost. And we didn't talk much about alternatives. I'll just summarize. Fossil fuels produce low cost, reliable energy for every type of machine, including like heavy duty mobility, including industrial process heat that we depend on for steel making and plastics. And they do it for billions of people in thousands of places. Solar and wind, cannot even produce low cost, reliable electricity, which is their supposed specialty without parasiting on reliable power plants and without getting these unfair things. So these are not remotely competitive. There's a huge amount of lying around them, but if they were actually competitive in, with these battery schemes, they would just have freestanding solar and wind and battery grids and nobody does that and nobody is proposing that because it's a crackpot idea because these technologies absent the ability to parasite are wildly cost ineffective. I did a quick price estimate of Elon's claim that, oh, we can run the whole world on solar panels and Tesla batteries. And using his optimistic calculations, I came to $400 trillion worth of just batteries, uh, which is you know six times, six and a half or something times GDP. So it's important that, yeah, all things are not equal. And this right, right. argument that it's not even remotely true, even with nuclear, we're decades or generations away from there being actually in reality, able to provide energy for all the different uses for billions of people. So fossil fuels are, i put it this way, they have irreplaceable benefits for the foreseeable future. And so anything, if you think you have a, a valuable use of energy. So if you think that Bitcoin is creating value, which there, I think there is good reason to think and most people listening to this will think it much more strongly than I have, I do because they're into it, but I'm very in favor of getting rid of government control of money. So I'm very sympathetic to it. If you think this is valuable, then you have to be very proud of it. It's like, this is value. And you have to recognize this value will inevitably be created in one form or another using a lot of fossil fuel. All these claims about there's just, so I, I was on a, another podcast, Stefan Levera's podcast, and I went into some detail if people want to see that, but it is, Basically, anyone who tells you that they're going to use a lot more energy in the future and they're not going to use a lot of fossil fuel is lying. That is the bottom line because energy is just because fossil fuels are so uniquely good and because nuclear is so hamstrung. If nuclear were liber- liberated, you'd have a chance. Uh, but this idea that 
it, all this stuff is just it like it involves, oh, I'm taking credit for a hydroelectric dam that was already there. Or I'm like, I'm pretending that I'm using all the solar and everyone else is using all the coal. It's all these accounting gimmicks. Uh, it's not real. Fossil fuels are an irreplaceable value. And so all things are not equal at all. And that means the moral case for fossil fuels, you need to know as a Bitcoin person, you need to know that, hey, I'm creating value using fossil fueled machines. That's a good thing. I'm proud of it. We're making everything better, including, by the way, we're 50 times safer from climate than we used to be. And if we keep using fossil fuels, we'll become even safer and billions of people will come out of poverty, just like billions have before using fossil fueled machines. I, I totally agree with that. And is it fair to, to say that you think it's just an entirely misguided objective uh, to this narrative around Bitcoin mining and, and trying to shift over to the unreliable sources of energy? Do you, you, would it be fair yeah, to say that that's just a misguided objective? Renewable, I regard as a primitive religious objective. Renewable is not an economic term and it, and it discriminates against nuclear and it usually discriminates against uh, hydro except when they want to ramp up their numbers. So that often you, renewable in practice when they give you high numbers means hydro and burning wood. Uh, but when they're imposing policies, it means neither of those. It just means solar and wind and then a bunch of batteries made of course using fossil fuels because nobody's making batteries with wind turbines and solar panels. So yeah, renewable, I mean, philosophically never value renewable as a concept. It's just a synonym for no impact or natural. It's not true. There's no such thing in the realm of energy. So if, if people talk about lower carbon, that would be at least plausible, but it's not going to happen anytime soon. So you just have right. to recognize that. So no, if you're talking about something that requires low cost, reliable energy, what you should be talking about, the most you could do is say, hey, let's liberate, let's make sure we liberate hydro. Let's make sure we liberate nuclear. That would be a great thing for the Bitcoin people to get into say, hey, there's this potential way of generating a lot of low cost, reliable energy with more safety and lower emissions. Let's do that. But it can't be, oh, fossil fuels are bad. So let's put Bitcoin on hold until we have this magical solution in the future. Then there's no more Bitcoin. Right. Well, Alex, that's time up for us. Uh, we could go on for several more hours. Hopefully we'll have a chance to do another one in the future. Um, I loved your book, by the way. Look forward to your, your forthcoming book. Um, anywhere you want to direct people before we shut this down? Yeah, thank you for asking. So um, on Twitter and just Alex Epstein, my name, and then I have a website, energytalkingpoints.com, which has, as it suggests, talking points, a lot of facts on all these issues. And I'd highly recommend you, there's a mailing list to sign up for. So if you want to know, what I think about things once a week, sign up for that mailing list at energytalkingpoints.com. Awesome. Well, look, man, I really appreciate the work you're doing. Keep fighting a good fight and uh, we'll talk again in the future. All right. Thanks, John. All right. Take care, Alex.
Let's go. 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 Let's go.